Hi, I'm Mark Lynch, director of the project on Middle East political science. Welcome back to the POMAP's Middle East Books podcast, a series of conversations with authors with new books in the field. Uh, joining us today is Aaron Jakes, uh, uh, history department of the New School, with the brand new book, Egypt's Occupation, Colonial Economism and the Crisis of Capitalism, just published by Stanford University Press. Uh, Aaron, thanks for joining us. Thanks so much, Mark. I'm really grateful to be talking to you. Well, so let, let's talk about the book. Um, what, what, what was the main contribution of the book? What were you trying to achieve when you set out to write it? Okay, so I mean, in the broadest sense, the book is a, it is a history of the period of British rule uh, in Egypt after the occupation of 1882. <clears throat> and it makes three broad arguments. Um, first, that uh, this particular form of colonial rule was organized around the discourse that I call colonial economism. And this held that Egyptians as racially distinctive human subjects were um, narrowly attuned to their own economic interests, uh, such that broadly speaking, liberal political economy could apply in a place like Egypt, but liberal political theory could not. Mm -hmm. Now those ideas, uh, among other things, led to a series of dramatic experiments in agrarian finance, so the second uh, major argument of the book is that uh, under these conditions, Egypt became a crucial laboratory and target for um, financial investment in the worldwide financial expansion that was characteristic of global capitalism at the end of the 19th century. Uh, and finally, I'm sort of interested in the interplay between uh, the discursive claims of the British regime and these uh, dramatic transformations that were taking place. And so um, the book offers a new account of the um, transmutations of anti-colonial politics and the emergence of uh, Egyptian nationalism in and through a set of sustained and quite rigorous debates about the relationship between the economic and the political or between economics and politics. Yeah, one of the things which is super interesting about the book is the way you really draw on those debates that took place uh, within the Egyptian press. I mean, it's very clear how sophisticated those discussions and arguments actually were at the time. Uh, yeah, so, I mean, this was one of the things that was pretty striking, like having read the, the literature uh, on nationalism, which is incredibly rich, um, I was not at all prepared when I started uh, reading those newspapers myself for um, the frequency, intensity, diversity, and and uh, and rigor of the kinds of commentaries that were happening about the the sorts of transformations that that British rule was was unleashing. So you have people who, um, uh, by the early 1900s, are articulating critiques of imperial finance that look logically quite similar to uh, arguments that we're more familiar with from from people like Lenin and and Hilferding. Um, you have people who start to articulate things that look like early instances of dependency theory. Um, and, and those people are all at the same time kind of trying to think through uh, what the implications of these uh, dramatic economic transformations were for the possibilities of different kinds of politics in the country. Yeah, it's really, it's really, and we'll, we'll come back to that um, in, in a few minutes, because I think it's like super interesting. But before we get there, um, since this is, since your book is, uh, you know, you're writing from the perspective of an historian, uh, and an historian of Egypt and of global finance, um, for the political scientist who's picking this up, what, what are the major points of reference that they might like grab onto? I mean, for me, with someone like Tim Mitchell or Ellis Goldberg or someone like that, what would be the points of reference that a political scientist would see kind of theoretically, conceptually, and in the literature? Um, thanks. So, so 
I think one way of coming at this would actually be to sort of dr draw a line from what's what's missing in um, in some of Mitchell's work to uh, to a different way of explaining some of the kinds of things that I think uh, Alice Goldberg and Nathan Brown and others have, have been interested in. So um, uh, I have found myself saying a lot recently that particularly right now, uh, we need Mitchell's big argument about the economy all the more, that the kind of um, uh, critical relevance of an argument that we need to think about exactly what the abstraction, the economy mm -hmm. means, where it comes from, what kind of political work it's doing, uh, seems all the more relevant, particularly in the United States right now, um, as we continue to deal hopefully with the waning days of Donald Trump. That said, mm -hmm. one of the striking things about um, uh, Mitchell's work and particularly rule of expert, which, rec, rule of experts, which is the, the most relevant um, work for my purposes, is that while that book provides one account of uh, sort of the institutional, um, uh, technical, and, and intellectual changes that were uh, necessary to make a concept like the national economy thinkable, um, the book has almost nothing to say about the relationship between the emergence of a concept like that one and the emergence of nationalism as such. In other words, it, it explains the national economy uh, and yet nationalism as a historical phenomenon in that same period uh, is almost entirely obscured. And so one of the arguments that, um, that I make early in the book is that it might be quite helpful to distinguish um, the historical claim that I actually think Mitchell is making about when the economy as a very particular kind of, um, of abstraction generated out of new techniques of calculation around things like uh, gross domestic project, uh, product or national income accounting, how we might distinguish that phenomenon from a much earlier uh, distinction between the economic and the political um, uh, as as apparently separate domains. And so uh, I'm suggesting that we can actually see throughout the, the history of liberal thought, basically from um, certainly from the 18th century onwards, a kind of lurking tension and unease among many of the key figures uh, of, of British liberalism about how to think about this relationship and how to resolve it. Um, and Egypt became the site for um, experimenting with and testing out kind of one hypothetical response to that problem, uh, which is that the, um, the relationship between the economic and the political uh, was one that had something to do with civilizational or, or racial hierarchies. The idea being that uh, only more advanced peoples were really capable of overcoming self-interest in such a way that they could engage in the forms of collective deliberation that were the real domain uh, of politics. Um, and, uh, and so I'm interested throughout the book in thinking about and looking at all the ways in which uh, a whole series of actually generations of Egyptian thinkers uh, were interested in thinking about and contesting those kinds of claims, um, but also how um, actual movement politics uh, was forged around efforts to overcome those sorts of distinctions. And so um, sort of pivoting to the question of, uh, of Goldberg's work, 
Um, uh, particularly, you know, over the last year, as, as there's been an enormous amount of commemoration of the 1919 uh, revolution, um, there's been a kind of reprise of an argument that seeks to um, distinguish, often for very well-intentioned reasons, uh, a kind of elite bourgeois technocratic uh, iteration of uh, what was happening in 1919 that's kind of focused on negotiations uh, at the Paris Peace Conference from the forms of mass insurgency and mass mobilization, uh, particularly that were taking place in the countryside. Um, and uh, one of the things that uh, I'm trying to do in the second half of the book is actually to show uh, that the the phenomenon of mass politics uh, in Egypt had really uh, already started to grow quite significantly um, through the first decade of, uh, of the 20th century, um, and that we might actually read many aspects of what was happening uh, in that revolutionary moment in 1919 as a reprise or, or remobilization of political constituencies, of repertoires of contention, um, of ideas, that had been kind of forged in this uh, earlier moment of um, uh, nationalist politics and nationalist consolidation that, that happened um, particularly in the aftermath of the, the Ottoman constitutional revolution. And, and it's really in that moment that uh, you have a kind of convergence from two sides uh, between the uh, relatively more elite leadership of the country's major nationalist organizations who started to think about uh, forging solidarities with uh, with workers' movements. And on the other hand, um, workers' groups that had previously been engaged largely in fights over kind of basic working conditions, starting to think about the union and the strike as mechanisms for leveraging uh, manifestly political claims and, and thinking about popular self-representation. There's a lot. There's a lot going on there. Let, let's take a step back to the, to the beginning of of what you were talking about, which is this kind of uh, uh, economistic colonialism or colonial economism, and this idea that you know the the, the natives, the the Egyptians, at their level of development, they could really only think through their pocketbook, right? And so the way to win their loyalty was to um, provide material benefits and and as and generates this this but or this boom this economic boom which from you know the the British perspective was this huge economic boom but as you as you argue um, it doesn't really scale down the way that they think it does right yeah absolutely so um, it it was certainly the case that by the early 1900s um, the British could in their annual reports uh, and other modes of publicity around what they were doing in Egypt claimed that they had delivered unprecedented prosperity uh, to the country. Uh, and those claims, uh, which had a power to circulate globally uh, that was much greater than that of most of the people that were contesting them, uh, have a really significant resonance in other places. So um, although I only really touch on this briefly in the book, uh, it's quite interesting uh, that the government of the United States at a moment at which it's beginning to think through what American forms of colonial rule in places like the Philippines might look like, uh, looks to Egypt as a possible model uh, for what, what they might do there. Um, on the other hand, uh, 
both these nationalist journalists that I'm looking at and actually the financial institutions themselves have a very different view of uh, what these modes of investment are actually going to mean for Egyptian society. So um, I was really fortunate to find in London very detailed records from a, um, a British insurance company that decided to start investing part of its float in mortgages in Egypt. And uh, the committee of people in Egypt responsible for actually contracting those mortgages were very explicit from the, from the beginning that although the British themselves claim that these forms of financial investment are going to redound overwhelmingly to the benefit of the country's smallholding peasantry, uh, the banks of this kind were in fact very wary of making loans to that class uh, of farmers. And so they carefully circumscribed uh, the groups of people and actually the geographies in which they were willing to lend. Uh, and because those choices were not unique to that one institution, but many of the new financial institutions that were created were making similar decisions, there's a kind of class striation of financial markets that ends up meaning that huge amounts of capital get channeled to many of the wealthiest landowners in the country um, in ways that are very different from the experiences of um, lots of other people. Um, and you know, I can see that happening in the archives of the financial institutions. It was also the case that many of these Egyptian commentators on what was happening noticed this as well and were writing about it um, from a pretty early point and also anticipated that this uh, boom-like form of investment was likely highly unstable. And so many of them also anticipated correctly that there would be some kind of major financial crisis, which eventually occurred in, in 1907. Me being a political scientist, not an historian, I can't help but think that this story of um, it, it's not unlike what we see in um, in the two thousands in the two thousands, for example, right, where uh, the Egyptian uh, economy is doing great by World Bank standards and GDP is rising and 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 all that, and yet inequality is growing and all this stuff is happening on the margins, um, kind of which is obscured by the by the by the reporting and the way that economic um, statistics are put together and presented. It's just really interesting. Yeah, I mean, and to that, I would just say um, that those comparisons were on my mind when I was doing this research, and I'm actually interested in in owning them to a degree that might be unusual for a historian. So among um, many practitioners of the discipline in which I work, uh, there are a few worse allegations that, that you can make about someone than presentism. And my response to that is actually that one of the things that I find interesting and meaningful about uh, the literature of my own field is the degree to which many of the most important works that are still read today were written by people who were deeply immersed in the politics and problems of the moments that they were um, that they were writing in, and those problems allowed them to see certain kinds of problems uh, and phenomena in the past that weren't necessarily so apparent to people writing before or after them. And so I happened to start um, my dissertation research uh, in New York in the fall of 2007 at a moment in which finance was on everyone's mind. Mm -hmm. uh, and, and my point is not that I kind of went out looking for a phenomenon that, you know, that I then kind of cobbled together, but, but that, that this, um, these 
developments were were there in the historical record, but had been interpreted quite differently by um, earlier generations of scholars who were interested in other things. So, so to the extent that anyone has really written about this process of financialization, uh, it usually gets kind of subsumed under a story about Egypt's peripheralization or underdevelopment as a producer of uh, of cotton, and in a whole variety of ways, I think that that. Um, underestimates the significance of the changes taking place and what they meant to people at the time. So let's go ahead and talk about the, the cotton and then the bust then, because one of the things I really enjoyed about the book, and I don't know if, if this is standard in historiography or novel, but I liked, I really liked the way that you placed the Egyptian bust within this broader global context. Uh, and especially it was fascinating the way that the comparisons you kept making between what was happening in the United States and Egypt and the way that Egyptian kind of writers were actively thinking about that um, as you know, kind of the global causes and like models by which uh, they would like to see uh, the, the, the Egyptian government slash occupation respond. Yeah, so um, there are a couple ways of coming at this. Uh, one is just empirically what was going on. So, um, at the end of the 19th century, uh, in the in the wake of, or really in the in the midst of the the long first depression, uh, when the profitability of investment in the forms of industrialization that had kind of characterized uh, metropolitan development throughout much of the 19th century were suddenly yielding much lower returns, there were significant transfers of capital into major financial institutions in places like um, uh, Paris and London. Uh, that led to significant extensions of financial networks into other parts of the world. The United States was by far the largest target uh, of that investment. Um, but Egypt, um, although in aggregate terms was a kind of a bit player compared to the US, uh, was the target of similar kinds of investment uh, and therefore subject to similar kinds of volatility. And so um, I mean, I, I go into much greater detail about this uh, in the book, but basically um, a, a series of contingent events uh, late in 1906 caused first the Bank of England and then um, major banks uh, elsewhere in Europe suddenly to hike their benchmark interest rates, the rates at which they discounted bills of exchange. Uh, and this meant that a, a longstanding flow of easy money suddenly dried up. Uh, and through all of these increasingly speculative, leveraged, derivative-like financial instruments that had been created in places like Egypt and the United States into disarray. And so there were um, structural similarities to the phenomena that were happening in both places uh, that meant that they underwent uh, similar kinds of financial crises at the same uh, moment. Now, um, it's politically significant within the story that the book tells that this was happening because it meant that noticing that the United States was undergoing a similar kind of financial crisis made it possible for critics of British rule in Egypt to explain something more about what was distinctive to their condition of uh, colonial subjugation. So they noticed not entirely correctly on the details, but in, in the sense mm -hmm. it like doesn't matter so much. They they believed that the United States um, represented a form of um, government intervention on behalf of the public interest because the government actually represented that public 
that the British were withholding uh, in Egypt. And so comparisons to the United States for these nationalists, at least briefly, became uh, a way of kind of indicting uh, the British occupation by comparison. The other thing I would say about this as somebody who works in and around uh, the um, kind of re-emerging field of interest in histories of capitalism uh, is that that's a field that has, has really taken off within studies of the United States. Um, and one of my happy quibbles with uh, with a lot of the really good work in that field that's been produced by American historians is, is a tendency to reproduce certain kinds of American exceptionalism. And so um, what's notable about these connections and comparisons from that perspective um, is that within, within the world of finance, um, as many of these actors saw it in the, the United, uh, sorry, in the 19th century, the United States actually occupied a similarly peripheral location relative to British capital as a place like Egypt. And actually, you know, historians of politics in the US in the 19th century know this in a variety of ways as well. So the, the populist movement of the late 19th century could be construed as at least partly a reaction against uh, the subordinate status of the, the United States to uh, the British pound and to British finance. Um, that has interesting kinds of resonance with uh, things that were happening in other parts of the world. It also get it also speaks to that um, the discourse of uh, of colonial economism, though, um, and I, you draw those connections very nicely, right? It's that you know that this is a global phenomenon with global causes at a, at a time when, at, at least by my reading, the occupation was trying to paint this more in very local terms as a result of like the the Egyptian character. Absolutely, right? So, so um, once one, um, I mean, in, in a sense, this is one of the places where, where the book ends is, is that um, the, the most perceptive Egyptian critics of what the British were claiming about Egyptians understand quite clearly uh, that, um, that this discourse is an instance of what we would now uh, more commonly refer to as Orientalism. It's a particular mm -hmm. version of, uh, of Orientalist claim. It is also uh, often to the extent that, that uh, it makes explicit reference to the category of race, uh, a, a racializing or racist claim. Uh, and so they are on the one hand determined to demonstrate that uh, the behaviors of people in Egypt cannot and should not be attributed to forms of uh, racial deficiency or civilizational backwardness. On the other hand, they start uh, needing to grapple, particularly in the aftermath of this crisis, uh, with the fact that the, the crisis itself as a generalized phenomenon can only really be explained by acknowledging that very large numbers of people have been engaging in the sorts of uh, ultimately dangerous financial transactions and, and speculation uh, that have allowed the crisis to kind of ramify in the way that it does. And this means that they, they need to start thinking about why it is that people um, could, under certain conditions, behave like narrowly self-interested uh, subjects of the sort that the British were, were accusing them of being. And so um, Part of what I am trying to do, particularly in the last chapter of the book, is to, to kind of um, read through the writings of some of the 
most significant figures of what often gets called economic nationalism uh, for the ways in which they're, tr they're trying to navigate this, this tension uh, between a kind of rigorous critique of the, um, the racism of colonial economism and the way that it was made to sustain um, claims about the incapacity of Egyptians for self-rule, uh, while also thinking about the ways in which uh, the kinds of changes that British rule had introduced might actually be making it easier and easier or, or more and more common uh, for people to behave in, in economistic ways. And so their, their preoccupation with questions of subject formation, uh, with forging new kinds of institutions like agricultural cooperatives and banks um, that would agglomerate national capital are kind of tied up with a, a set of concerns about human freedom and about the conditions under which people might be able to deliberate collectively over different ways of living that are not so closely and immediately bound up with, uh, with concerns about economic interest. Well, so let's connect that then to your final point about uh, the rise of nationalism and kind of how this makes us rethink or re or change our understanding of what was really going on with the uh, with the nationalist movement in this period. Um, yeah, so um, I mean, the, the, the first thing to say there is that, um, again, I, I I know more about what this looks like within the discipline of history than in political science, but but uh, among historians, um, the influence of Benedict Anderson's work remains pronounced. Uh, and uh, right, Anderson again uh, wrote Imagine Communities in a very particular moment uh, and in response to a very particular set of concerns, right? He, he was um, deeply troubled by the fact that uh, these citizens of um, uh, countries that had undergone communist revolutions in Southeast Asia were killing each other when Orthodox Marxism said that that should be impossible. Um, and, uh, and so on that basis, at the beginning of the book, he makes a strong set of claims about the kind of intellectual vacuousness uh, and emptiness of, of nationalism. He suggests that it should not be compared to something like liberalism, but rather to kinship or religion. And he's interested in, uh, in explaining the kind of strong affective ties that uh, would cause people to, to willingly go off and uh, fight and die in these wars. Um, at the end of the book, I'm uh, suggesting by, by reading these thinkers that, that they themselves are making almost exactly the opposite claim, hmm. um, that they begin to articulate uh, a, a quite sophisticated and rigorous critique of British liberalism as they have encountered it. They are deeply troubled by the idea of a society uh, comprised of atomistic uh, self-interested individuals. Um, and by virtue of their class position, of their uh, concerns about what it uh, already might look like in other places, they are, they are also quite wary of socialism. And so their understanding uh, of their nationalism as they describe it is a kind of effort to triangulate between uh, a critique of the kind of reigning ideology of the moment uh, and a set of responses to it that they regard uh, as quite dangerous. Um, and so this, this means on the one hand um, that uh, 
many of those figures became quite skeptical of the uh, forms of mass politics that had started to kind of burble up in very exciting ways um, uh, around 1907, 1908, uh, in this massive wave of uh, strikes and labor actions that start to happen and student demonstrations, all sorts of other uh, exciting phenomena. So there's a kind of skepticism about uh, the possibilities for revolutionary mass politics. Um, but on the other hand, um, a, a quite um, thoughtful and compelling diagnosis of the problems of the moment that they're dealing with and, and where they land uh, is ultimately um, a, a, a kind of strong faith in the power of the rescaling of, no, of social relations along national lines uh, and the end of colonial rule uh, to resolve uh, the, the problems and contradictions that they were grappling with. Now, you know, we know subsequently that things did not work out that way. And there were plenty of people around at the time who had other, other views that were already skeptical about this. But um, I, I think it's important um, if we are to be writing and thinking critically about the history of nationalism, to have a critique that also kind of um, both takes account of uh, uh, of its intellectual content uh, and also tries to explain why it why it might have been so compelling to such large numbers of people at the time. Well, that's good. It's been it's been so interesting. Um, uh, we've been speaking with uh, Aaron Jakes, who's the author of Egypt's Occupation, just published by Stanford University Press. And uh, there, there's, so, there's so much rich material in here. I feel like we keep talking for another hour, but unfortunately the program is coming to an end. So thank you for joining us. Thanks so much, Mark. I'm so glad to have had this chance to talk with you about the book. And I should say, right, this is a book that was born uh, uh, in the orbit of POMAPS at, uh, at GW. So I, this, I started this is really- true. I, I neglected uh, to mention that uh, you were a postdoctoral fellow at the Institute for Middle East Studies. So we're, I'm very, very excited uh, that we were able to help you produce this great book. Thanks so much.